You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and I'm being joined as usual by David Leach, ITK analyst and Renew Economy contributor. Look, our special guest today is Andrew Dixon from CWP Renewables. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Giles. And hi, David. Yeah, look, um, look we've brought you on because, um, look, um, CWP is obviously doing a few interesting things. I think in the last week you've actually connected Sapphire Wind Farm for the first time or started delivering to your contract to the ACT government. So you've got 100 megawatts of that. Two, is it going to be 270 megawatt or 170 megawatt wind farm? Yeah, so the project's total capacity is 270 meg and 100 meg is contracted to the ACT and we started delivering on that on the 1st of May, so last Monday. Congratulations, yes, and that's um, probably the third biggest, um, or it's going to be the biggest wind farm in New South Wales, at least for a time. For now, yes. Yes, yes, yeah, that's right. But look, um, the reason we got you on board is not so much to talk about that wind project, exciting as it is, um, but this fantastic new project that you guys have been talking about over in the Pilbara. Now, uh, it's called the Asian Renewable Energy Hub. It's in the Pilbara. You announced just in the last week that this already big project, six gigawatts of wind and solar, which would look to export energy to Southeast Asia, and we'll ask about why in a minute, you're adding actually another three gigawatts of this, um, of wind and solar to this project, making a nine gigawatt project. And to put that in some sort of context, it will produce as much electricity, 33 terawatt hours, as is contemplated under the renewable energy target by 2020. Exactly, it's an extraordinary exactly. scale. Yeah. What do you think? What, what, what are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, WA is the land of big, plentiful things. So we thought if we're going to do a project over in WA, we need to supersize it. So just add a few zeros to the capacity. Well, you're not kidding. Yeah. Um, look, I've I got a couple of questions before David hops in on some of his more analytical ones. One is, who knew there was a wind resource there? Because we always think of Pilbara and fantastic solar resources. Mm. Um, where did you find this wind resource? And, and, and is it, well, I'm guessing it must be real because you're going two thirds wind and one third solar. Yeah, correct. We, we had a hunch that there would be reasonable wind resource in parts of the north. Um, and so we actually worked for 12 months to prospect all the way up and down the northwest of Australia. Uh, obviously, solar resource is ubiquitous in that part of the world, but uh, we found a site uh, which is 14,000 uh, 14, square kilometres, of which we've sort of picked the top 7,000 square kilometres, and it has both you know, excellent solar resource and very good wind resource. Um, and obviously, they're, they're, you know, they're very good resource, but they're complementary. So it's very windy sort of overnight in the morning and the evening. And then obviously you can sort of infill with solar during the daytime. So it's a really cracking uh, resource overall. God. And look, the, the original plan, and it may be that you do your domestic um, thing first, and we'll talk more about that later, but this idea of exporting six gigawatts of, electro- mm. of, of power and, and having it for the export market, and this line, this subsea cable that goes to Indonesia and then mm. may go further, I guess, to Singapore and other southeastern Asian countries. Um, a bunch of questions to pose over that. One, the cost of that project and can you deliver cheaper energy there than they would otherwise source? And two, why, why wouldn't these countries just do it themselves? 
Very good question. So the starting premise for this project was obviously excellent resource and lots of space in northern Australia and you know lots of demand you know growing um, development and the need for electrification and renewables ambitions in Indonesia. So it's really combining the generation capacity in Australia with the load in Indonesia um, and using the latest subsea HVDC cables which make uh, the project technically, technically viable. So Andrew, then what you're basically telling us is, is that um, is that the, the demand for that from those countries that they simply don't have the land capacity themselves to be able to build renewables of this scale, and that the cost will allow you to be able to you know deliver that capacity at a cost competitive to the other options. Exactly. I mean, we can achieve very substantial scale uh, by generating in Australia. Uh, at a scale that it's that really is not possible on archipelagos such as Indonesia, so and also obviously the you know it's much less um, monsoonal as well. So the actual the resource is very very good in northern Australia. So yeah, it's a it's a confluence of factors, but it just makes a lot of sense to generate in Australia and then consume in Southeast Asia. Mm. Mm. David. Uh, so I, I, this is interesting because we've seen a, quite a lot of nut proposals. I mean, even in Australia, we had proposals to bring gas from New Guinea uh, to Australia before they eventually decided to turn it into LNG. And um, uh, DC cables certainly make this possible. I guess uh, if I was developing the project, the thing that would worry me about is Indonesia and the amount of rule changes that they have. Uh, um, uh, and so I, I guess part of the output's going to go into Australia as well, isn't it? It is, yes. Last week we announced an expansion of the project to uh, dedicate three gigawatts, an extra three gigawatts for large energy users in the Pilbara. Uh, and that could be used for new and expanded mines, for downstream mineral processing, but also potentially for the production of hydrogen, which could be used for both domestic and export markets. So really the expansion is opening up new pathways to market for us. Uh, and then we can really see which markets come online first as to how we develop the project. That's right, uh, um, because Indonesia has proposals to develop, I think, another 30, 30 gigawatts of renewables over the next 10 or 20 years, but mm. they've got next to no wind or solar just at the moment, even though they claim to have a lot of potential. Um, what, what do you see as the, uh, be the biggest difficulties in getting this project? Because it, when I heard it uh, talked about it at the conference, mm. it was one of the most fantastic projects I've heard about in ages. I mean, if, uh, you know, this is, this, is, this is absolutely world scale. Mm. Uh, you've got a great consortium developing it, um, um, but um, I guess it's easier than an LNG project, but not how much easier. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, there, there are still challenges that we're going to work very hard to overcome. Um, securing the right off-take agreement is a challenge, uh, obviously dealing with very different cultures. Um, but again, we, we see this as a positive if we can really achieve it, because it kind of further enmeshes Australia with our nearest neighbour uh, economically and you know, makes us closer politically as well. Um, but, you know, still we've, we've got a lot of work to do to finalise you know, commercial terms. Um, and also, I mean, the, the subsea cable is, you know, it's, it's very long. It's, um, it's over two and a half thousand kilometres uh, and it's through parts of the, the world that are quite volatile. So yeah, on a desktop level, it works. Uh, we're about to start geophysical and geotech uh, surveys, you know, at sea and uh, we'll know more in coming months. I guess there are internet cables that, uh, that do the similar thing between most countries, aren't there? Indeed, yes. I mean, subsea cables are not unusual. There's plenty of them for telecommunications. Uh, and 
uh, HVDC power cables are becoming more viable every year. So Prismian is the world's largest such uh, supplier, and uh, yeah, it's no surprise that they're a key part of or a key partner for our consortium in this project. Uh, and I, uh, of course, in Europe, lots of European countries are connected one way or another, even of course across mm. the UK Channel. Uh, to, to, so. Uh, that, that, that part of it's no surprise. And when I look at the economics of uh, HVDC, uh, mm. the terminal stations are a big part of the total costs. So Correct. in the end, having, having uh, as maximum throughput, making a big project makes DC much more worthwhile than just fiddling around with <coughs> a humble gigawatt or two. Indeed, yes. So, I mean, obviously it's a very big capital cost, so you need enough generation scale to make it viable. So, yeah, we, we think this is about the right sort of shape and size for it to work. Um, and basically wish us well over coming years, <laughs> see, see if we're right. What, what sort of ex transmission facilities are there in the region for the domestic part at the moment? Is there any? So there is the NWIS or the NWIS, um, which really has evolved over decades. And it's a, I mean, it's a bit of a, a cobbled together network really compared to the rest of the NEM. So um, various lines are owned privately by different companies. Um, there are generators sort of spread around owned by different companies. And, and really, it's been every sort of proponent sort of looking after themselves effectively uh, in the absence of a proper market. So um, the Pilbara Development Commission and the WA government had a vision to, to really sort of reset that, um, to form the basis for future growth and economic development in the Pilbara region. You're talking about the domestic capacity being three gigawatts. Where would that demand be? Um, where, well, where is that demand? Is it in the Pilbara? Or would you have to go further afield and, and, and use the hydrogen that you, you mentioned before? Or Yeah, so it's it's both existing mines um, exist, well, and, and new mines, existing and particularly new downstream mineral processing and also hydrogen production. So, I mean, it doesn't take much to have a very substantial load Ooh. in the Pilbara. Projects there are, are massive. So, yeah, we, we're in negotiations or conversations with lots of large energy users and really they will inform, you know, where we hopefully build new transmission infrastructure and size yeah. things to, to match the market presumably need. they're paying mostly gas now or in some cases diesel. The ones that are sourcing mostly from gas, I mean, what sort of cost are they paying? Are they, are they paying a price that makes renewables competitive? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, but by our models, we think that we will uh, supply power for around half what lo uh, a number of the large energy users pay. Hmm. Um, and obviously, currently, it's you know, it's gas, and it's getting more expensive. Um, so renewables just make a whole lot of sense just on economic and grounds. And that can be like um, um, Sun Metal Zinc Refinery in North Queensland and Sanjeev Gupta's efforts in Wyala, yet another cause about how you can actually expand manufacturing operations in Australia rather than restricting them by using cheaper renewables. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I Obviously, think if you, at, if you look at the history of energy developments, I seem to recall as at least one and a half gigawatts of off-grid uh, power, not necessarily all in West Australia, some's in the Northern Territory and some's in Queensland as... Uh, as well. Mm. I mean, a lot of the behind the meter generation in the Pilbara is, you know, particularly gas plants, um, whereas what we're proposing is in front of the meter uh, at a large scale. So people will buy from a central generator um, through, you know, through a, a, a new transmission network, um, but they, they may also complement that with our existing gas uh, plants um, and maybe even behind the meter renewables of their own too. Just it depends how the economics stack up. Giles, a lot of those plants are the reciprocating engine ones, um, uh, which, which you know, AGL's adopting for its new Newcastle plant and also in South Australia. So 
in a sense, that existing technology, whilst it's expensive to run using diesel uh, or even gas that, that comes through APA's pipelines, the Goldfields pipeline, uh, um, uh, is still perfectly complementary to that renewables resource. Andrew, a question I was interested in, the scale of this project, uh, I've been working on an academic study that, that says that uh, the scale of projects is one of the two big drivers of cost. Uh, as the, the learning rate is the other one. Mm. Uh, of course, there's the resource, but we're going to take that for granted. Uh, I guess a, a project of this scale, you would, you would expect, would have pretty efficient uh, capital costs. Absolutely, yes. And so, I mean, but the cost of capital will still be, obviously, you know, critical for this project because the capex is very, very big. So, of course, you know, we're talking to NAIF and, of course, you know, we'll, we'll approach it in that way. Um, but, yeah, of course, um, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, 1,250 wind turbines, three gigawatts of, of PV arrays. Um, but inter interestingly, we're actually proposing to do a lot of our manufacturing in Indonesia. So, um, yeah, the scale of what we're proposing that, that's, is that's possible. That's for the local component. I understand everything in Indonesia has to have a local component pretty much one way or another. Yeah, I mean, we're not obliged to do that, but we really want to package uh, a proposition that's very attractive to Indonesia, not only to buy, you know, um, clean, uh, reliable power, but to help develop their skills base and the supply chain in renewables um, to really make it attractive to the Indonesian economy more, broad more broadly. That sounds great. Giles, I can't remember, but is this thing bigger than the Adani uh, coal mine? It must be about comparable in cost. At oh, least. I would say it's going to be bigger in cost and we'll probably have more real jobs. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and I venture to say it's probably got a sounder economic case as well, not to mention environmental and engineering. <laughs> jobs wise, I mean, we, we would imagine about 3,000 jobs uh, in construction for about four years. And then about 400 jobs for the 60-year life of the project. So very substantial Who owns this land that you are um, looking at? So it's state crown land, um, but there's a native title uh, recognised to the Nungyamata people. So, yeah, it's, it's land that's not really uh, developed economically at all currently. There is cattle grazing um, closer to the coast, but it's really, you know, a fairly open site. So tell us... And that's the ideal land for wind and solar. It's the same sort of thing when we look at these renewable energy zones in the, in the national electricity market. We're looking for the land that's got a great uh, wind and solar resource, uh, but isn't, doesn't have much value necessarily right now for anything else. Indeed, and, and that really factored in our 12-month investigation, uh, really trying to find the confluence of factors that make it, make it a great project. And sort of we're really relying on our you know, many, many years of experience developing projects like this around the world. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, I think land cost is going to be a bigger and bigger deal in, in mm. the marginal renewable project, but that's down the track a bit yet. I just got one more question about this. Um, the, t tell us about the hydrogen element then, because we're hearing, you know, sort of talk about the hydrogen economy is coming. Uh, I'm a bit doubtful as, as far as it concerns sort of, you know, small car transport, but um, possibly can be convinced on, the, on this large scale storage, which is what you're talking about. What, what, mm. what can you tell us? What, what's your view of the hydrogen thing at the moment? And hopefully it's a, a lot cleaner than this idea of using brown coal to create hydrogen. Oh, yeah. absolutely. So, I mean, we're, 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 we're talking with a number of parties who are much closer to the market than we are, but um, we're certainly hearing very strong, well, you know, growing interest in three markets in particular in Southeast Asia. So Japan, South Korea and Singapore. So, um, yeah, we're making assumptions on how quickly those markets will emerge. Um, 
but it's it's not uh, it's not just for transport. It's also ammonia for uh, for fertilizer and also potentially for use in special turbines for direct power generation too. So yeah, I mean ammonia is really a it's, it's a vector for carrying um, hydrogen viably. So it's it's very co uh, energy intensive and expensive to liquefy hydrogen. But uh, by converting it to ammonia, it's actually quite straightforward, mm. and it uses LNG-type infrastructure. Mm. So it's it's an easy way of shipping it. Mm. And um, just just go back to this land. I mean, so if you've got your twelve hundred turbines and your three gigawatts of solar panels, mm -hmm. um, what sort of area are you talking about? Can you tell us? Like, is it fifty k's by hundred k's, or it must be something extraordinary like that? Yeah, so our, um, it's 7,000 square kilometres, and we've got a link on our website, asianrehub.com. Mm -hmm. You can zoom in on Google Maps. Um, but essentially we have, I think it's 13 rows running sort of diagonally um, with, you know, with wind turbines dotted, dotted along them. Um, and the rows are about six kilometres apart. Um, so yeah, our site starts about 30 kilometres inland from the coast and extends about another 60 or so kilometres inland. And so that's beneficial in terms of um, attenuation of, of cyclones. Obviously, it's a pretty volatile mm -hmm. part of the world, weather-wise. Um, and we've, ob yeah. So the further inland you go, the, the yeah, better it gets. Yeah. And, and Andrew, I can't remember what have you said about the wind resource. Uh, I think the wind resource at hub height is 8.2 meters per second. So I mean that's that's getting quite high. These are sort of future turbines that aren't yet available to to buy. Um, but it's you know it's getting up quite high to to get the you know the the, the strong and reliable winds. Oh, you mean you need you, you mean you, you mean tall you, you need tall turbines to taller, get to get correct the wind. Oh, taller. Okay, then. And what? And, and that's and that's obviously a trend that's you know well underway now. I mean our sapphire wind farm turbines are much larger, much taller than and, and much bigger swept areas than turbines we've used previously in South Australia, for okay. example. And eight point two meters per second, which you just mentioned, how does that compare with other? Hmm. Um, oh, that's, a, that's about an average wind speed, I would have said yeah. myself. It's it's good for that part of the world, but it's it's not like sort of South Australian or Tasmanian wind okay. speeds, obviously. And in fact, the advance in wind technology has all been around e exploiting these more medium wind speed conditions and designing the turbines for that to get the capacity factors Indeed. up over forty percent. Mm. Indeed. Yep. Look, fascinating to talk about that and good luck with that project. Look, there is one other thing that I'd love to talk about, this other project that you've been in, and it's absolutely fascinating. I'd like to spend about five or you know, possibly more minutes on it. This is about Trev, Trev the solar car. Now, Trev is called a two-seater renewable energy vehicle. It's a two-seater solar car that was actually in the Darwin to Adelaide solar race in 2007, 12 years ago. Now, tell us what happened next. You saw this car had this idea, had this vision, what happened then? So I guess I was just intrigued with the look of this vehicle uh, initially. It was, you know, it's very space age, you know, it's just a, it's a surreal vehicle. It's really sexy. Um, so I, I had the vision together with another guy from UniSA, Peter Pudney, to, to borrow the, uh, the car from the University of South Australia to, uh, to upgrade it significantly. And we got sponsorship from Google and Galaxy Resources, a lithium miner from WA and others. Uh, we spent about a year upgrading it. Uh, and then we raced it around the world in a race called Zero Race or a Zero Emissions Race. So uh, in effect, we, we drove um, 28,000 kilometers around the world in 80 days of driving. Good grief, on all solar powered. Well, um, the car is actually an electric car. It doesn't have panels on board. Oh, okay. 
um, the, the 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 reason for that is that um, our team actually has you know many years of of history racing solar cars from Darwin mm-hmm. to Adelaide, and really, I mean, fifteen years ago, uh, the team were thinking, team members were thinking, you know, if you can drive across Australia at you know one hundred kilometres an hour, powered by the sun, why can't I drive to work in a practical electric car? Um, and so that's that was really the uh, where the the idea for Trev hmm. began about uh, fifteen years ago. I understand the the real key to this car is that it's lightweight. Uh, mm. How much does it weigh? Uh, this car, the design uh, weight was three hundred and fifty kilograms. Uh, it was slightly under that before we upgraded it, so it's it's around four hundred kilograms. So it's much much lighter than the cars that many of us drive to work, which can be you know several tons. It's just out of your bench press range, uh, David, I think. Um. <laughs> <laughs> But it's but it's a good point where um, obviously the higher the mass, the more energy required to propel the car. Um, and with petrol cars, we don't really tend to notice that because of the high embodied energy. But if you're using sort of diffuse sunlight, you really need to crank down the uh, the amount of energy use so that the solar panel size and battery sizes aren't too expensive. So tell us what the opportunities are now. What, what what's happening now, and what, what what's the what's the project that you're working on now? Because solar taxis mm. in Africa. To sum it up briefly. Exactly. So after we drove around the world, um, we had a phone call out of the blue, really, from northern Zimbabwe, um, where there's very high maternal mortality. So, I mean, literally pregnant women die and their babies die for preventable reasons because they're, they're transport poor. They can't get from remote villages to help uh, when, they, uh, when they give birth. And if things go wrong, they, they often die. So, um, yeah, we got a call saying, can you please help? And it, to be honest, it sounded hard, you know, logistically and technically. Mm. So I went there about five years ago and I met uh, an Italian NGO called Chesvi um, and a number of government people and health clinics. And I established that first, the need is absolutely real. Secondly, the partners are very credible. And then sort of understood the conditions so that we could design an appropriate vehicle, which we've been doing for the last uh, few years. Yeah. And so what's the prospects now? Um well, tell us about the vehicle, first of all. Yeah, so the, we, we actually started designing the vehicle by choosing the wheel and the tyres. Um, the roads are very rugged, so we, we chose an ATV or a quad bike wheel or tyre, and then we chose a, a quad bike suspension, and then we custom designed a chassis that would take that suspension and wheel. So um, it's very, very low mass again. Uh, it's a total mass of 150 kilograms, so a few people could easily lift the car. Uh, it's ridden like a big quad bike, so there's a driver sort of sitting in the middle with a battery under the seat, and then two seats behind the driver, and it's all propelled by uh, electric bike hub motors in the two rear wheel hubs. So it's very simple. And how big's the battery? Uh, the current battery is sized, I don't recall the number of kilowatt hours, but it's sized for a range of about 80 kilometres. So it's lithium-ion um, uh, phosphate, which is cheaper than lithium-ion polymer, which we used in Trev, but it's you know it's possible to to make the battery bigger or smaller depending on the range that you require. But for us, 80 kilometres was perfect. Hmm. Uh, and and uh, have you? And I guess in Zimbabwe, cost is going to be a big deal. It, it is absolutely. Um, I mean, in in the region we're talking about, in the Zambezi Valley, there are I mean, there are no petrol stations. There's often no um, no grid electricity. Um, so we needed something that could be entirely off grid. So solar charging stations powering vehicles that operate completely autonomously in the middle of you know, sub-Saharan Africa. Fantastic. <laughs> 
that that's the power. But in terms of actually the cost of produ- the vehicle, I, I, I'm thinking something like that could be pretty cheap. But mm. the material's plastic. The the battery is just a, it's just an electric bike, which is like a couple of thousand dollars with it with a bigger shell around it. Oh, less. Yeah, the the, the motors are just a couple hundred dollars each. They're very cheap. Um, it was a lot of you know manual labor to build the prototype, but it could absolutely be designed for high value, uh, sorry high volume manufacturing, to be very very cheap. So this is a proof of concept. We're really wanting to prove this vision for off grid transport, addressing sort of transport poverty issues. Um, and yeah, our plan is to uh, to send it to Zimbabwe, you know, in the next sort of six to twelve months, to see if what we've dreamed up actually works in practice. I'm more interested in is it street legal in Sydney? It's not, unfortunately. <laughs> no, it's um, quad bikes aren't street legal. So we're having to, and in fact, even in Zimbabwe, they're not currently legal. So I'm planning to go over there in a few months to sort of argue the case that, you know, that we would like a, an exemption in a particular region for a particular time to demonstrate the, you know, the, the validity of, of our innovation. <laughs> and, and if you get that through, then maybe it's a good idea for the government fleet in Canberra. <laughs> it's a very simple car. If you if you jump on the website, you'll notice that it's pretty basic. Um, but you know, it it. I mean, what what it compares to is either you know fully pregnant women walking you know thirty forty kilometres to a health clinic. Yeah, imagine. Um, or riding an ox mm. cart. So literally oxen towing a cart, and you know travelling fourteen sixteen hours to get to a to a hospital, and oxen you know get grumpy when they're tired and they roll over. And so it's, you know, they're really basic options. So what we're offering is something, you know, a bit of a game changer. Fantastic. Andrew, thanks for those great stories. Look, um, I'm just going to sort of wrap up um, now, I think, with some of the news of the week. And um, David, I'm not too sure whether you've got anything to report or anything to look forward to. But look, one of the stories that we have written a couple of things about is about, and and, um, Andrew's perspective might be interesting here, this is about marginal loss factors and the changes um, in the ratings that have been announced by, or, you know, um, revealed by AEMO, or revealed by Renew Economy, actually, from the AEMO website, and also the warnings about curtailment in Victoria um, for new wind and solar farms. Now, I guess none of this is new, but it does highlight to me um, one thing is that... um, um, building wind farms and solar farms is um, a little bit more complicated than some people might have thought and um, these might have been um, actually affecting some of the people um, who might not have been um, this thinking that these things hard research enough. industry all over. It's only once you get a few years down the track and, and you suddenly find out from management that the, about something you'd never heard of before why your profits were down this year. And so I think we've all been aware of MLFs, uh, the sort of premium or discount that you get for where your power station is located relative to the load. We've sort of all been aware of that in the background, but it's not something that the developers of these projects have been talking a lot about. Similarly, curtailment is an issue in the theory, and we've seen curtailment in practice in South Australia in the past 12 months. And it was a reasonably, and still is, a reasonably predictable outcome of increasing renewable share managing curtailment, and we actually talked about this when we talked with what's-his-name from NREL about uh, how to manage curtailment and and the marginal value of the next solar unit. And it's why you and I, Giles, have been banging on and banging on about this integrated system plan and about the need to get the transmission done first before we really go to town on building the renewable uh, generation the country's going to need. 
Mm, from mm. from my perspective, obviously, you know, the better developers absolutely do consider MLFs in you know, when positioning projects and choosing projects, but there can be consequences for you know closures like Hazelwood, for example, that you know that no one could foresee, certainly not in that time frame, and that really caused ripple effects you know across across the NEM that have really impacted our projects. So they're temporary; they last several years, but they definitely do affect project economics. And you know, even if you choose a cracking project, you can be hurt by things that you couldn't foresee or control. That's interesting. So how would Hazelwood then affect some of those wind farms? Is it because of the changing sort of nature of the grid and the changing flows on the network? Spot on. That would, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. And so some of those wind and solar farms that might have expected, that might have been aware of MLFs, may have assumed a certain capacity or a certain multiple and have actually been disappointed because they found that's lower than what they thought it would be. Absolutely. In the short term, their, their economics are affected negatively. So, I mean, there, there are winners and losers with the MLF game, but um, mm. yeah, it's, it's, it's very frustrating having these big changes that you can't control. And mm. I think there's a whole uh, power engineering uh, encyclopedia behind grid strength that, Giles, you and I are sort of aware of as a force out there, but we don't, or at least I don't, certainly don't understand, you know, that's this need for all these devices to, to reinforce the grid. We're not just talking about inertia. Uh, we're not talking about frequency control. There's a whole lot more, as I understand it, to managing a network than that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the short the short circuit strengths. Uh, <laughs> do you know much about that? I certainly don't. But I, I, you know, short circuits something where I normally go outside. I thought we got rid of that. We just turned the, the switchboard on again. But uh, <laughs> it seems it seems in the bigger world of power engineering, it's it's the short circuit ratio is something you have to think about. And John, flicking to you very quickly. Uh, yes, is the answer. I'm not, I, I'm not an expert on such things, but I've heard the expression before. Oh, there you go. It just shows that I mean, this power industry has just got so much detail in there that uh, um, is yes. almost um, imponderable. Look, guys, I'm just going to say a very quick thank you to us um, podcast sponsors, which are What Watches and Solaray Energy, and we do appreciate that support. Look, just wrapping up, um, in the coming week, um, David, um, there is National Energy Week happening this week, in Melbourne. I think a lot of interesting people are going to be speaking, Audrey Zeeman from the AEMO, all the other institutions, including all the main political figures. So that'll be very interesting. Andrew, are you heading down there? Uh, I'm not. I'm busy on the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, you know, okay. developing projects. Too busy. Okay. There are so many conferences, you can't keep up. Well, that's true enough, actually. Yes. That's, yes. Why, that's why you go to Renew Economy, because if it's, if it's happening in the renewable energy world, it's Renew Economy, that's where you find it. <laughs> That's absolutely oh, true. David and Andrew, thank you very much for that plug. Look, on that very buoyant and happy note, I think I'm going to say goodbye to you, Andrew. Andrew, look, congratulations on your work in this fantastic, huge thing over in the Pilbara and for Asian renewables and also this small level um, um, solar car. I mean, both projects just absolutely fascinating. Good luck with both. Good I'd, like, I'd like to add my vote to that. And I, I, I think the, the Zimbabwe thing is fantastic at a personal level. But if you can make the Pilbara thing work, that's, that's great for a lot of people. Great. Watch this space. Thanks very much, David. Um, thanks very much, Andrew. And thanks very much, listeners. Um, please leave a review on your favourite platform. Tell your friends about it. Give us some feedback and we'll speak again same time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.
Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solar Ray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.